welcome to Main Engine Cutoff. I am Anthony Colangelo, and we've got a special guest with us today. We've got Caleb Henry of Space News here to help break down some of the news from Satellite 2018. Uh, but before we get into that, I do want to say a quick thank you up front to all of the supporters of Main Engine Cutoff over on Patreon. There are 177 of you supporting the show over at patreon.com slash Miko, including 28 executive producers who have produced this episode of Main Engine Cutoff. Chris, Pat, Matt, George, Brad, Ryan, Jameson, Nadim, Peter, Donald, Lee, Jasper, Chris, Warren, Bob, Brian, Russell, John, Moritz, Tyler, Laszlo, Joel, and six anonymous executive producers. They made this episode possible. I could not do it without their support and everyone else over at patreon.com slash Miko. Don't forget, there's headlines each week to get if you're at $3 or more a month over on Patreon, and you can get access to the off-nominal Discord for $5 or more. Thank you all so much for your support. I could not do this without you. Caleb, thank you very much for coming back on the show. Uh, it's been about a year probably since you were on, right? Almost. Maybe around there. Yeah, a little I think, less. I but... think it's just typical now after satellite conference each year, you're coming on the show. I think that's what we've decided. That's a good pattern. <laughs> I can deal with that. <laughs> so yeah, we're we're going to dive into all sorts of news from that. You were You spent the week just engulfed in it. Uh, and you've got, we've got a list here of all sorts of topics that came out of it. Um, do you want to just start with maybe some general takeaways on what you experienced during the week and any uh, like main trends or things that, that you really took away from it? Sure. So I guess the, the biggest trends, or I'll say this, an interesting pattern that you can watch at the satellite show is who they give the keynote speakers to. This year, the keynote was given to uh, an antenna manufacturer that's trying to design a, uh, they won't exactly call it a completely flat, a flat panel antenna, but they're trying to design a completely new antenna that's supposed to work really well with future satellite constellations, including some of the mega constellations like OneWeb and SpaceX and Telesat. A year or two ago, that spot went to Greg Weiler of OneWeb. Uh, they also had a keynote this year on, on satellite servicing. So those, those are usually indicators of like what the big thing is or the big theme is going to be for that year. And I think you saw that really strongly this year uh, compared to a year or two ago where there is this rise of attention to the space side of the new mega constellations and thousands of satellites in orbit, hundreds and, and thousands. You're now seeing people looking at some of the more technical questions. How do you make sure that if you launch hundreds or thousands of satellites that you'll actually be able to use them all. That requires like simple user terminals on the ground that can connect with them and let you stream the internet and, and have people pay you for it so you can justify yeah, totally. it. You can actually use anything that you've put up there. Mm -hmm. And that's something in that you feel like there's a lot of misconceptions about how that works and something that doesn't cross a lot of people's mind that like, you know, this isn't just something your phone's going to be able to pick up immediately, that there is this other, uh, you know, section of the market that totally needs to be figured out before any of this can really come uh, into, you know, full fruition. Certainly. Uh, another interesting just fact on that. So I, I never expected to actually be excited about antennas. I'm still kind of scared about that. Uh, but there are uh, also, I'm, I'm blanking on like exact dates, but I want to say it was about two, maybe three years ago that Northern Sky Research, the analyst firm, put out a report on flat panel antennas. So like in a nutshell, first off, if you talk to somebody who, who builds antennas, they will 
they'll go on for like an hour and they just they just won't stop so prepare yourself if you ever do but uh, the basic premise is, is this. Most satellite antennas today are parabolic, they're the dish that you recognize everywhere, and those are not really good at tracking more than one satellite at a time. There are other limitations, but that's, that's probably one of the biggest for, for these new constellations. So in order to have something that can track you know, multiple satellites at a time, you need to have what's, you typically want what's called an electronically steered antenna. And NSR used to be tracking like 12 companies that were pursuing designs that could do that. Now it's over twice that amount. And so they're, they're spread out across Europe, across the U.S. and Asia. And you've got lots and lots of people trying to crack this side of it in order to, to make these you know, come to reality. So that's, that's, people are investing a lot of money, including your, your big satellite companies, you know, Intelsat and SES and even smaller operators or medium-sized operators like uh, Hispasat and uh, SkyPerfect JSAT are, are all getting into this. So it's definitely a, a new, or I'd say a noteworthy trend. Now, from what you're picking up at the conference, is there, um, it, are the manufacturers of the flat panel antennas, the people that are still working on it, developing the technology, are they keeping their cards close to their chest right now and not really sharing a lot of what they're working on because there's still major breakthroughs that need to happen? Or is it kind of, you know, widely known what the problems are, what they're overcoming and, you know, how the path from where we are now to shipping massive amounts of these antennas, is that a clear path or are they all still trying to figure out their own way there? I think it's a mix. You've got some, obviously, Kymeta and Phaser that are both talking about product shipments this year. Kymeta is already shipping, and Phaser, I believe, is really soon. Others are uh, a little bit more reluctant to to come out and say entirely what they're doing. Uh, Isotropic came out during the the conference itself, and and they were one of the keynotes that talked about their antenna, which their founder used to work for O3B, has a lot of knowledge about what it takes to make a non-geosynchronous satellite system work. Uh, I also want to add that it's not fully fair to like peg all of their success or anybody's one success on like mega constellations. People are still really skeptical as to how those are going to pan out. Uh, antennas are a big part of it, but I think they're for the ground guys, like the people building antennas, their business success is not predicated on the success of the mega constellations. Whether or not it's so much the other way around is is more debatable. Interesting. And in that regard, you know, the, the two big players that people think of are SpaceX and OneWeb. Um, knowing the way that SpaceX typically runs, which is let's make everything ourselves, uh, is there mm -hmm. any, do we have any ideas of their, if they're going to go with their own units or if they're going to use, you know, other people's flat panels or white label them somehow? Do we have any idea what they're planning in that regard? So I think there was a Wall Street Journal article that name dropped somebody SpaceX was working with on, uh, on an antenna, but I don't recall who it was off the top of my head. That is the signature SpaceX thing to totally. do as much as they can in house. This is a, a really complicated side of it. So I I don't know how they would go about doing that. You know, not that it's impossible for them, but uh, this is something that, you know, even, even even as I start to say this statement, I realize that you could say the same for rockets. My first thought is like, oh, people have been trying to build better rockets for decades. And, you know, that was so difficult. And then SpaceX came along. So maybe the same thing will happen here where it'll be like, oh, people have been trying for decades to create this breakthrough ground unit. And then SpaceX will come along and be like, figured it out. 
Yeah. Somehow I, I think that's the phrase that peaks ears in Hawthorne is, you know, people have been trying this for years and it never worked out yet. <laughs> that's yeah, kind of their specialty. That's for challenge accepted. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the OneWeb has had some interesting movements on the Mega Constellation front the last week or two. They mm-hmm. put this application in to the FCC to massively increase uh, the count of their satellites because FCC relaxed some rules on how quickly you have to get all these satellites up. Um, do you have any thoughts on that move by them in general, what that could indicate, or is it just them trying to keep up with the existing law that's out there? One thing that was really interesting to me about that development, so you're, you're right, they, the original application that they had with the FCC was for 720 satellites, and they've indicated before that they've, they want to do a larger system than that over time. But once the FCC relaxed their rules on how many satellites you had to have in orbit in order to still have rights for uh, the spectrum and permission to to serve the U.S. market with that spectrum and the satellites, uh, when they changed that from you have to have everything up in six years to you can have half of it up in six years and the full thing in nine years, then SpaceX wants, excuse me, not SpaceX, OneWeb now wants to add 1260 more satellites on top of that to me that speaks to the the magnitude of the influence that the u.s market has on this system because if OneWeb is willing to reconsider the number of satellites in their entire constellation just based on one market knowing that their goal is is global it really tells you something about how much how much the U.S. system influences these constellations and how much potential they see here. Because I think all of these constellations know that they have to have some markets that they can rely on. If you don't have like a guaranteed market where like people are definitely going to pay you enough money to justify building and even doing more uh, ambivalent programs like connecting schools in Africa and Latin America and elsewhere, you want to have that backbone. and so. Now that there are less restrictive rules, uh, I think it, that was a little bit of a telling side insight from how that came about. Part of me wonders if they are just trying to raise their ceiling as high as possible. And because it's what, it's half in six years, the full thing in nine. And if you don't get all of your satellites up in nine, you get your uh, authorization reduced to whatever you have in orbit. Is that how it works? Yeah, it, it kind of freezes at wherever you reached. So I'm wondering partially if they're just raising the ceiling to be like, oh, well, we'll get as many up as possible. And this is the most we could possibly support. And they're taking the opportunity <laughs> to increase that headroom. Uh, I don't know. That's probably a little conspiracy theory, but it's it, it's a massive jump from being OK with 720 to all of a sudden wanting 1900 satellites in orbit. That seems like a huge <laughs> diversion uh, when SpaceX all along has been talking up, you know, 4000 or whatever they're going to put up there. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's certainly way more. Uh, I wonder how much the availability of just launch capacity is going to change over that time. You know, when OneWeb signed their contracts with Arianespace for, I think it was 23 still use, and then there's some options for Arian launches, as well as like 30-something Virgin Orbit launches. Both of those were discussed or labeled as like some of the biggest launch contracts in history for that program. So now OneWeb also has Blue Origin as a launch provider. I think that perhaps it's the increasing number of launch providers that's giving them confidence that they can put up more satellites because launch is traditionally viewed as the bottleneck. 
but now you have so many systems that are coming online that maybe they're less scared about delays. Yeah, about not not actually having enough capacity to put that number up at all. Mm-hmm. Could we take any hints out of that um, to say that maybe their production plant plans have been going better than planned? Because that's the other half of this, right? They have to make that many mm-hmm. satellites in just a few years. Uh, and I know they've got their initial run over in France, is it? And then they're going to move to mm-hmm. Florida after that. So could that be an indication that they're very confident in their production line capability? I think they certainly are confident in, in the ability to do it. But another detail that that came out from their filing or one of their filings is that they didn't drop the month of the launch anymore. Or rather, I should say they, they, they didn't mention it in the their filing. They used to say May. And in the recent one, uh, the one that they asked for more satellites, they just said our first launch is in 2018. So that that makes me a little circumspect as to how tightly they are holding to that schedule. Yeah, at least for the initial uh, run. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Now, the other thing that's on your list, well, I guess we'll just polish off one web news while we're here. Uh, you, <laughs> well, if one weird story, uh, which is that whole Greg Weiler situation, but maybe we can get into that later. Uh, <laughs> but you brought up the interesting comments that SoftBank had at Satellite um, about how they were going to be managing one web capacity. Maybe could you talk about that a little bit and, and also give some background on the structure between SoftBank and OneWeb, because it's a bit of an odd relationship there. Yeah, it is. So when, gee, where do you begin with this? Yeah, so can, SoftBank you, can you please the... re-explain the last seven <laughs> years of the satellite industry? <laughs> SoftBank invested like a billion dollars in OneWeb. And at the time, SoftBank, they, they were kind of like the... I don't know, they were kind of like the priest at the wedding between OneWeb and Intelsat when, when they were trying to, to get together and become one company. And it didn't happen. It fell apart. But during that process, uh, there's a lot of like connective tissue that, that still remains between those three companies uh, because SoftBank was also going to invest in Intelsat at the same time. So now you have this arrangement where Intelsat still has rights to sell some of the spectrum or excuse me, some of the capacity that OneWeb has. But SoftBank, through their investment, bought all of OneWeb's capacity. They're actually like their whole customer, uh, which goes into the the plan, the master plan that Masayoshi's son has for creating this incredibly interconnected world that's really, really futuristic, for lack of a better word. Um, but yeah, there's there's this plan there. I thought an interesting takeaway, again, was the fact that during SoftBank's uh, luncheon presentation during the satellite show, they mentioned that they'd be willing to partner with other operators besides Intelsat to sell capacity. And the reason that that's so interesting is because you've got regional operators that know that there's like there's no way in the world that they could afford to spend like billions of dollars on a mega constellation, but they certainly don't want to be upended by these guys either. So they watch them very closely, but they're also cautious about what they can do because they know that they're just not big enough or they don't believe that they're big enough to, to get into this space. That's, that could open up an opportunity for lots of players in the existing satellite ecosystem to participate in the OneWeb mega constellation, and maybe you'll see others follow a, a similar route. I think uh, perhaps a parallel would be with Inmarsat. You know, you're a large British satellite operator that has their global express network, which covers the whole world using 
three satellites and a fourth as a backup, and they're building a couple more. But they've included a a payload from Telenor, the Norwegian satellite operator, to cover part of Europe, just because they had the same type of capacity in an area where Inmarsat wanted more. It was like they had their whole network, and then they like teamed up with a regional player so that they could have like a greater point of presence there. And maybe you'll start to see the same thing with uh, with OneWeb and others. Uh, one last point on that would be that when the Inmarsat, or excuse me, when the Intelsat merger was teetering, there were rumors that other satellite operators might have wanted to come in and, and buy OneWeb as well. So I'm curious if anybody who was also a, a suitor might try and come back. Now, is that a statement at all on, um, it seems like a, you know, a big piece of the plan here that SoftBank is now floating to, you know, hey, we're open to something different. Do you think mm-hmm. uh, because of the way, you know, was it was it the merger that caused them to rethink their overall grand plan? Or was it maybe some shifting in capacity usage or even increasing capacity by, you know, adding 1900 satellite or 1200 satellites uh, total? You know, what is it that's driving that change of, of thinking from SoftBank's direction? You know, to be honest, I don't know if it was a change of thinking or something that they just hadn't vocalized before, but it was a surprise to me that they suddenly expressed this willingness to have other teammates. What SoftBank has said in the past is that they see OneWeb as a a long-term investment and that they're willing to shore up other parts of the industry to make it happen. You can see it in even some of SoftBank's other investments, like SoftBank has invested in more than one ride-share comp- ride-sharing outside of the like satellite ride-share. We're not talking like yeah, space flight. Yeah, yeah. Actual ride-share. Yes, yeah, like Uber. <laughs> They've invested in more than one of those uh, because they have a plan. And their their plan involves, again, this, this interconnected world where you've got, they want to have vested stakes in multiple parts of, of their entire ecosystem. I could see SoftBank trying to do something where they they realize other areas that they could invest in in the, the space sector that could make their grand plan come together more fluidly. And of course, the, the fact that Intelsat couldn't close the merger has to play into that. But I think that their willingness to, to go big has never been underestimated. Yeah, it's like a mega corporation is like, a different term, but when you see how much they want to be involved in globally, it's uh, mm-hmm. like starts to feel like some sort of Marvel villain uh, running the <laughs> whole world. I don't know. Uh, last one web thing I've got, and you don't, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this. We didn't talk about this before, but this whole like Greg Weiler shell companies buying Boeing's mega constellation stuff. What the hell's going on with this? Is there anything that, that you've got on this front? <laughs> So I've seen that filing too. The, that is definitely weird that Boeing wants to give one of their constellations over to this company with like a barcode style name. It's like SOS, <laughs> SOMS 1101, something like that, that, that then Weiler would control. The, my thoughts on it, well, first you, you have to back up and, and ask yourself, why is Boeing getting into this in the first place? And Boeing has been fairly tight-lipped about their reasons for having filed with the FCC to to build a mega constellation. One of the theories that I, I think is particularly interesting is that 
Boeing doesn't actually want to field a constellation, but they're willing to do the groundwork, like the heavy lifting on a regulatory front, so that if somebody was like, you know, this sounds like a good idea, like they could come in and they would build it and it would keep their manufacturing engineers busy. So maybe rather than, um, you know, maybe they, they saw an opportunity through giving a filing to Greg Weiler that, that would give them a slice of the manufacturing for another batch of satellites uh, against their aircraft arch rival Airbus, who is helping yeah. you know, OneWeb. It, it could be a foot in the door that way. But otherwise, like you said, it's, it's real weird. There's a lot of, a lot of weird stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's really strange. The interesting thing I heard a couple of years back, maybe just a year back or something, was there was a rumor going around that Apple was looking to get into some sort of constellation and that there was people from Apple spotted at Boeing and having some conversations. And there was this whole, like, I don't know, it turned into like a fan fiction thread about what Apple would do uh, with a constellation of their own. But, you know, when your your kind of theory here is that there was something bigger in their plans to get involved with um, that maybe didn't work out and didn't pan out. And now they're kind of just nobody knows what to do with it because they didn't plan on building one anyway. It's it's just a really weird story. I'm interested to see where that ends up, but probably not worth our time right now if there's like no information on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the fact that you've got, I remember that rumor as well, that, that Apple might be interested. You look at all the, your big tech companies or your, your Facebook, your Google, your Apple, you, Samsung, like up in like one of their researchers was like, you know, what would be cool, a mega constellation. And they wrote a paper on it and then everyone freaked out. So they're like, does Samsung want a constellation? But Samsung never really went beyond the, like, this is a cool idea. And if we were going to do it, maybe this is what it would look like. Uh, that was, that was kind of the end of the line for them. But I think within the space industry and within this larger, you know, just internet tech industry, there's a lot more overlap than people realize, even so far as just employees shifting back and forth between the two companies. And so it's no surprise that ideas that start, you know, germinating in one company might actually hatch in another. Right. It's, it's, it's just, it makes complete sense because of the level of, uh, of integration between the two that might not always be apparent on the surface. There's a lot of Google DNA still in OneWeb, I, I believe. You know, that project did have roots elsewhere. And then I think there might have been a company in between there that people rolled out and started something on their own. And it's just like, I don't know, everything's getting all tangly these days with tech <laughs> and, and space, which is good for nerds like ourselves. But um, the other big thing that I wanted to talk to you about uh, before we run out of time is... There's been a lot of people apparently doing a lot of math on satellite servicing, specifically life extension. And apparently the math is working out well because we've seen a couple of contracts be signed for some life extension services. Um, mm -hmm. What do you make of all that? Is it is it just merely a couple of people trying out what the services could do for them? Or do you think this is a real trend that we're going to see, you know, get a lot more expansive than it is now with just a couple of contracts signed? I think it's a, in part, a responsive trend. It is definitely interesting that in like a year, maybe 18 months, we've gone from this being a speculative thing, largely. I mean, besides like the shuttle servicing Hubble and some, some pretty rare events, yeah. it's gone from things like that to, oh, there's three companies that 
are all building satellite servicers and all plan to launch them in the next couple of years. And they, you know, they all say they've got customers. Uh, Maxar Technologies with SSL has SES. Uh, Orbital ATK has Intelsat and uh, Effective Space Solutions. They, they haven't named their customer, but they say they have you know, two, two contracts where they're like space drone, small sat servicer things. Uh, or servicers fit in a small set body, I should say. Uh, one of the thoughts that I have on that is it seems like the servicers could be in part a response to the hesitance within the overall satellite industry to buying new satellites. This is something that you'll hear manufacturers and the actual ser satellite servicer providers say themselves is that there's so much change going on in the satellite industry right now that the the operators are are scared to just straight up buy a new satellite. Yeah, <laughs> like so they would they're just rather committing to their old projects. Yeah, it's like you know we'll just keep this one a little longer and uh, see if I don't know the the next version is going to be better. They might not want to commit to the iPhone eight yet if they know <laughs> <Right>. that <laughs> the next version is right around the corner. So. Uh, that's to borrow a, a Peter Platzerism. If you've ever talked to him from Spire, he would like to talk about small sets as being the the iPhoneization of space. Whereas, like this this level of like tech refresh comes along coupled with uh, a level of of impatience for like the old way of doing things. You you start to expect satellite designs that are newer and fresher and faster all the time. And for an industry that's not used to moving that fast. You know, when it takes you as long to build a satellite as it does to get a college degree <laughs> and somebody comes along and is like, oh, by the way, we've, we're building a factory and it's going to create a new, a couple of new satellites every day. You know, just, just a couple of them. Like <laughs> that causes people to freak out and reassess entirely what they're doing. Yeah. And so, they're almost taking a step back and being like, am I the crazy one or are they, I don't yeah. know who is right here. Yeah. I mean, that plus like the launch, you know, launch is in such a weird spot right now because we're on the precipice of all these new launch vehicles, of all these new providers that, mm -hmm. you know, those two things coming together. I totally understand why there's this hes hesitance to, you know, embrace one more of the old model when it costs you half a billion dollars uh, all in to get something up in orbit. So, you know, the way that you're you're saying you're talking about that there, that does make sense to extend the life of, you know, your assets a little bit just to see how things shake out in the next two years before you make any decisions that will last, you know, a decade or more. Yeah. The fact that you brought up the changes in launch vehicles is another good point because come 2020, 2021, you'll see, you know, Ariane 6, assuming everything keeps scheduled, you'll see Vulcan, you'll see Ariane 6, you'll see Japan's H3, and you should see the the Proton variant. I think Proton Medium should be up and, and running by then. That's a lot of New oh and new Glenn new Glenn yeah forget that as well, as, as well. Uh, you've got a lot of new vehicles and I'm going to keep interrupting myself. <laughs> Who knows if India's uh, GSLV will become a mainstay in the the commercial sector too? Uh, I think India's gotten used to some success and, and notoriety with PSLV for small sets. You know when they finally mature their larger rocket, maybe they'll be a player. So you've got so many new vehicles, but new vehicles have a high risk of failure or higher risk of failure than established ones. So maybe as a hedge against what could be a sudden unexpected bottleneck if rockets start blowing up left and yeah, right, right. <laughs> people just want to keep them in orbit for a little bit longer.
that's I'm really interested to see how it goes and and it looks like Orbital ATK is, you know, they they've added a couple components to their architecture overall. So they they seem mm-hmm. pretty confident. They seem like they haven't really been upset by the whole Northrop Grumman situation. So uh it's I'm I'm super intrigued to see how this all goes, but like everything it's what I guess we'll see one launch this year or two launch this year. And then the rest are 2020 like every other space project ever. <laughs> Always 2020. Yeah, 2020 yeah. is going to be nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna mark my calendar, but yeah, we're we're at the precipice of a lot of really exciting things. The the same things that are giving satellite operators angst and headaches and keeping them up at night are the exact same reason why the industry is so exciting to cover right now. Yeah, there's so many ways that it can go that uh, it's going to be very intriguing to see how different things are. You know, five years from now when we're just into that new era, because it really does feel like we're at this transition point. And, you know, things could be pretty much the same in five years or it could be completely different, uh, which is always fantastic. So I hope you'll uh, keep coming back after Satellite 2019 and all those other years before (laughs) we get everything settling down again for, you know, the next era of whatever it is that comes. Certainly. (laughs) Be happy to. Uh, Is there anything else that you wanted to mention before we close up for the day here? Um. One other takeaway from the satellite show that I suppose is a little bit invalidated today, but something I was expecting during the conference was the announcement of new geostationary satellite orders. And that didn't happen. There were there was zero during the week of satellite. No new satellite during satellite, which I thought was funny. But <laughs> just today, you had two orders that both went to Space Systems Loral, uh, one for Spacecom, the Israeli satellite operators Amos 8, and then one for a BSAT 4B for a Japanese company. So you're seeing some new orders coming in, but uh, and we, we talked about this in the context of everything else already, just satellite servicing and the fact that you've got all these new constellations coming up. But um, again, the, the industry is a, at this inflection point and you can see it just in the way different companies behave. But once... Hopefully, you know, they, they can't sit on their hands forever. So I think there's going to be a lot of investments and a lot of decisions. And, and like we were saying earlier, uh, the next five years or so, or so could bring about a lot of radical change. Or who knows, maybe it'll, it'll completely revert back and you'll have geo reign supreme and people will be saying, I told you so. We did this in the <laughs> 90s and didn't work. And then you thought you were clever and you tried it again and it still didn't work. And I don't know. We'll, we'll see who's right. It's going to be exciting. <laughs> So uh, where can everybody out there follow along over the next couple of years? Uh, where are you writing? Anything else you want to plug? Let them know where to find you. <laughs> uh, window for a plug. Well, you can always follow <laughs> follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm trying to be better at the Twitter thing. I might have said that last show, which means perhaps I'm not really improving. I do tweet <laughs> at least once a day uh, and live tweet launches and, and stuff like that. But yeah, you can follow me at uh, chenry underscore sn on Twitter. And then you can find my work on Space News alongside Jeff Faust and Sandra Irwin, my coworkers. Uh, we cover everything related to the business and politics of space. Uh, again, it's a really exciting time. I enjoy it a lot. And uh, I think if you want to keep up on all the things happening in space news, yeah, that's where to go. I agree. It's the essential read. So I'm always there. I'm, I know every show has got like five space news links in the show notes. So I'm sure that if anyone <laughs> listening has not been to spacenews.com yet, I don't actually know what they've been doing listening to the show for however long. Uh, but if not, you got to go read it there. Thank you so much, Caleb, for coming on. And I want to hold you up from all the news that is happening out there. 
Uh, so thanks, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Certainly. Appreciate it. That's all we got for you this week. Thank you so much again, Caleb, for coming on the show. And thanks to all of you out there supporting Managing Cutoff on Patreon, patreon.com slash Miko. If you've got any thoughts on the show, always love hearing them. Email me, anthony at managingcutoff.com or on Twitter at WeHaveMiko. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you again next week. 